Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's page 576 if you have one of the church Bibles, 576. On May 13, 1940, Britain's new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, stepped up to the podium in the House of Commons to deliver what would become one of the greatest call to arms ever recorded. World War II had begun, and the seemingly unstoppable forces of Adolf Hitler were roaring across Europe, conquering country after country for Nazi Germany. The fate of Britain, and indeed of the entire world, was altogether uncertain. Only three days earlier, Churchill had been commissioned by the king himself to form a new administration. So as all eyes settled on Churchill at the podium, the question in everyone's mind was, what will be Britain's policy toward Hitler? Here's what Churchill said. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. It is to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. Churchill rightly understood the times and what was at stake. And in the end, history has proven his wisdom and uh, of his actions and of his policy. In fact, if it were not for him and for Churchill waging war, you and I would probably not be sitting here right now. 1900 years before that, the Apostle Paul penned the letter of 1 Timothy. He had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus, and this letter to him began by reminding Timothy of why he was there. And so you might ask, Paul, what is your policy? And Paul will tell us this morning, it is to wage war. This morning we're going to examine the first chapter of this letter, and as God so permits, we'll unpack what Paul has in mind by this policy, and how you and I are to carry out those orders ourselves. So, I want to direct you to the first point on your outline, which I've entitled, Draw Doctrinal Battle Lines. And let me read verses 1 through 11, and we'll also jump to verse 18 for a little more context. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, 
for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And jumping ahead to verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The first thing that should jump off the page when we read 1 Timothy is the amount of military imagery and authoritative language that Paul uses. Consider right in the the beginning of verse 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle by the command of God. And three times in verses 3, 5, and 18, Paul uses the word charge. That word charge in the Greek is a military word, meaning strict orders given by a commanding officer. And also in verse 18, Paul expressly says to wage the good war. That's because there is war going on. No, it's not a physical war that Paul is speaking of here, but a spiritual one. But that does not make it any less real or any less urgent. In fact, this war is far more real and far more urgent than most of us usually realize. Thus, Paul's charge to Timothy and to us this morning is meant to clear our heads, challenge our assumptions, and call us to grab our gear and suit up. Okay, Paul, so what is our charge? Where do we go to war? What are Timothy's orders and what are ours? Paul writes in verse 3, Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Those are the orders. The word doctrine simply refers to a set of beliefs. Similar words might be creed or ideology. Each of us has such beliefs about God, about people, about how the world operates. They're truths that help us understand and interpret what happens and why it happens and even how it happens. Now, just a few verses later, Paul is going to explain a bit more about what he means by the different doctrine that he's talking about, particularly in regard to how one uses the law. But first, he wants Timothy and the Ephesian church to understand why he's drawing the battle lines over such a thing as doctrine. Why is doctrine so important? The answer is in verse 5. The aim of our charge, Paul writes, is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, wait a minute. This is a sermon called Wage War, right? And Paul's talking about waging war. But love? Doctrine is important because of love? And and more than that, waging war over doctrine is because of love? If you think that's what Paul is saying here, then you are absolutely right. See, some of us have been taught that doctrine is a bad word, somehow limiting God or even working against God. Others of us have been taught that war of any kind is bad, as though God were anti-war and somehow constantly frustrated at his inability to maintain peace in this otherwise perfect world he's created. But both of those views are wrong, friends. War is not contrary to love. War is what you do when what you love is most threatened. Said another way, love is what drives men to go to war. 
Moreover, this is love driven by truth, by right doctrine about the one who made us and who died for us. It's love driven by truth that stems from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. However, Paul has major concerns about how this war is going in the Ephesian church. It would seem that certain persons in the church are confidently teaching different doctrines, even though they do not understand what they're saying. In other words, they've wandered away into vain discussions, Paul says. And Paul tells Timothy that this needs to stop, and it's worth fighting over. Specifically, in verses 8-11, through 11, which we read, Paul calls out these errant teachers on their lack of understanding of the purpose of God's law. So a few minutes ago, I read verses 8-11 through 11 from Paul, and I'm going to do so again right now, but this time I'm going to share it from the perspective of those false teachers. That is, in order to understand what Paul is, is uh, arguing against, we need to make sure we understand what these false teachers are arguing for. So their understanding, the false teachers' understanding, is that the law is laid down for the just. It is there for the law-abiding and the obedient. It is for the godly and the righteous, for the holy and reverent, for those who respect their fathers and mothers, for life-givers, for the sexually pure, for men who behave in sexually appropriate ways, for abolitionists, and for the truthful and the forthright. These, say these teachers, are those on whom the law should be pressed down. The law, they say, is there to keep such people in line. The law is there as a heavy burden and a weight of responsibility, lest any of these fall into the snares of selfishness and sin. How would Paul respond to that? Well, in the text, he said, no! No, 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 and no! The aim of that charge is not love. Could a doctrine such as that issue from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? No! Absolutely not! Is that doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? No! It's an oppressive, burdensome thing that inspires guilt rather than grace and frustration rather than freedom. The Lord Jesus said that His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. But these teachers are instead following in the ways of the foolish king Rehoboam, who said, my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. And so Paul altogether rejects such a view, as well as, as he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now let's be precise here. Paul is not arguing against the law. Okay? Paul is arguing against legalists, against those who do not use the law rightly. Paul makes his position very clear in verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul sees the lawful use of the law in verse 8 and the gospel of the glory of God, verse 11, not as mutually exclusive but complementary. Let me actually pause here for a moment to make a recommendation to you guys. I'm going to recommend an absolutely fantastic book that I, I, I cannot recommend highly enough. It's called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. 
You should definitely pick up a copy. Here's the subtitle. Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance. Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. Okay, now don't let that scare you. Don't let that scare you away. When I first started diving into this book, I felt really intimidated and was wondering if I was in over my head. Like, do I have to take a bunch of seminary courses in order to prepare myself to read this book? But within the first hour of, of reading this book, my soul was rejoicing. And at multiple points throughout reading this book, there were tears in my eyes because of the, the wonderful, uh, passionate pleading that Ferguson makes, relentlessly calling his readers back to sound doctrine, to pure gospel, and to the lawful use of the law. It's truly beautiful, and I'm eager to read it again. But I warn you, as the subtitle suggests, this is not light bedtime reading. This is the type of book you should, you should read with a notebook and a, and a pen ready. Actually, a pencil. Definitely a pencil. And, and, and take notes and, and work through this. Uh, it, it will be well worth your time to understand more of how the gospel and the law intersect. Okay, back to Paul. What is it that Paul wants us to do with this? He has made clear to us here that we must draw doctrinal battle lines. But what would Paul have us at Grace Fellowship Church do in response to this letter? What does it look like for us to wage war? Let me suggest two applications for us this morning. The first is to discern, and the second is to divide. First, discern. I take this application from verse 7. Certain persons desire to be teachers of the law, but are without understanding about what they are saying or about the things of which they make confident assertions. So listen, friends. Confidence does not imply correctness, and platform does not imply piety. Let me say that again. Confidence does not imply correctness, and platform does not imply piety. Just because someone, including me, is standing up front or saying something with much conviction, it does not make what they're saying true. So we must discern the difference from the Bible, lest we be led astray. Now, that isn't to say that sound doctrine isn't also confident. Paul himself says, we know, and that we understand, and he charges Timothy with his God-given authority. So there is confidence there. But it is also easy to say something confidently and without understanding. Okay? When our children do this, it's endearing, right? One of my sons recently declared with much confidence, lobsters can chop off your fingers. And that's why they cost so much. He had no doubt about the validity of his statement. He had full assurance. However, when our teachers speak in such ways, Paul says we must charge them to cease and desist immediately. And if they do not, Paul would have us draw doctrinal battle lines. Which leads us to the second application, divide. Paul is plainly declaring in this text that doctrine matters and that it is inherently divisive. There are such things as contrary doctrines, and they must not be allowed in Christ's church. Now, Paul is not saying that every disagreement among Christians is worthy of dividing a church. Far from it. 
In fact, in many, many places throughout Paul's letters, he focuses on the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, even between Jew and Gentile, which was about extreme a divide as one could possibly imagine. But divisions are necessary. And as we've seen and will see throughout the rest of today's text, it matters a very great deal which side of the doctrinal divide you fall on. Now, perhaps you've heard the expression, doctrine divides, love unites. Paul would actually agree with that statement. But he'd also say that the aim of that division is love. These are not two opposing things. Division and love are not antithetical. So, practically, when should such divisions occur? In this text, Paul has given us at least three, which I will mention briefly here. Number one, the scriptures teaching on sin. Paul is drawing on the full counsel of scripture and declaring that the activities in the list in verses 8 through 10 constitute sin. If someone consistently refuses to confess that truth, Paul says it's time to divide. A second one is the gospel in verse 11. Do all parties believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures? If there is fundamental disagreement here, it is time to divide. And number three, according to verse three, is permitting false teachers. If a church is allowing false teachers to go on making confident, incorrect assertions without being addressed, it is also time to divide. Now let me just also end this point by briefly noting three things that Paul does not mention here as reasons to divide, even though in my experience, just being here in State College and talking with many, many Christians over the years, these are these things are, are a reason that most people tend to choose to divide and leave churches. And these things are musical style, church government, and church size. But Paul doesn't have any problem with those things. That's not his focus. He's focusing on the scriptures, the gospel, and, and whether the teaching is true or false. But so many people tend to break fellowship with an otherwise solid church, whether that's Grace Fellowship or another church, over these things, which are far, far secondary to the Scripture's teaching on sin, the gospel, and whether or not the teaching is true. So listen, friends, in times of war, you'll quickly find that as much as you may disagree with or be annoyed by the person but by any given person, once you're side by side in the foxhole, you will find that you're suddenly BFFs forever. So let's be ready to divide as necessary. But let's also be as united as possible as we wage war together here at Grace Fellowship Church. Let's look at the second point on your outline. Verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This point on your outline is called Welcome, Expatriates. And in this text, Paul gives us his testimony. And what a testimony it is. According to verse 13, Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul was one of the bad guys in this war. He was one of the generals, in fact, on the other side. But rather than receiving the justice and wrath that he rightly deserved, Paul says not just once but twice in this text that he was a recipient of mercy. And he even tells us why he received the mercy. Verse 13, because he acted in unbelief. And verse 16, because he was to be an example for future believers, which he most certainly has been. And not only did Paul receive mercy, but he was appointed to Christ's service. He was expatriated from the kingdom of darkness into Christ's kingdom of light, and he was welcomed, even given a leadership position, such that Paul was now leading the opposition against his former stronghold. And this is the way of Jesus Christ, my friends. No matter how deeply entrenched in the enemy's ranks that Paul or Timothy or the Ephesians or you or I or anyone else in state college or across the entire world may be, should Jesus Christ choose to show them mercy, we must welcome them. The diehard enemy of the gospel today may become our closest brother or sister in arms in the war against Satan tomorrow. Is it not already so among us? Who among us started out on the winning side? There is no one, not even one. There is no one here who did good, no one who understood. But my friends, our being welcomed into the kingdom was not up to us. We are not the active party here. Jesus Christ is. Look at just this short passage we just read for all the proof you need. Look at the words that Paul uses. It is Christ who strengthens. It is Christ who judges. It is Christ who appoints. It is Christ who shows mercy. It is Christ who gives grace. It is Christ who saves sinners. It is Christ who shows patience with the likes of Paul and of you and of me. All we do, according to this text, is receive mercy. And, and as we do, we turn from ignorance, Paul says, to thinking and to understanding. And that leads us to thanksgiving and to praise. And so like Paul, we exemplify for others Christ's perfect patience in us. Like Paul, we didn't choose the winning side. We were saved. We weren't worthy. We were strengthened. We didn't sign up. We were drafted. And now, instead of fighting a hopeless battle against the limitless power of God Almighty, instead, we serve Jesus Christ our Lord, the general who dies for rebels the king who dies for sinners, of whom you and I are the foremost. So what's the lesson for us here? It depends. 
Which side are you currently on? If you're here today and you don't see the world the way Paul does here, if you haven't thought of yourself as the foremost of sinners and have not experienced the life-changing mercy of Jesus Christ, well, he's ready to receive you and appoint you to his service. And your application is to turn from your ignorance, turn from your unbelief, and expatriate to Christ's kingdom. Like Paul, you will be judged faithful. Nothing will be held against you. The trial will be over, and only one thing remains, and that is mercy. Your past sins will be forgiven, every one of them, and you can begin a new life with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Fighting against God is wearing you down, and it has been for a long time. So stop fighting. Come to him. He will receive you, and so will we. Now, for those who have already been received by mercy, who have taken up arms, and who are waging war against the kingdom of darkness and of every false doctrine, your application and mine is to welcome expatriates. When there is a true, when there's truly a desire in someone to come over to our side, no matter how gross their atrocities were against us or others, even if you both agree that that person is the foremost of sinners, we must welcome them. Listen, friends, they may even end up leading us. Just look at Paul, the blasphemer and insolent opponent turned apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. And I stand here right now in this pulpit as one of your pastors, though 20 years ago I daily used every opportunity I could to shame the name of Christ and his people. But he received me anyway. And so did his church, though I'll never fully understand it all. So let us continue in this great tradition by welcoming future expatriates. Listen, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? So surely some of you experienced the irritation or the intimidation or even the all-out attacks of antagonistic relatives this past week. And some of you will be returning to hard-hearted attacks and persecution of anti-Christian co-workers tomorrow. Friends, those fiery darts that they're firing at you are real. And they hurt. But listen to me, friends. Those darts will not have the final word. No. Let me tell you what a final word sounds like. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was a skillful wielder of those fiery darts himself. But behold, he's on our side now, leading the forces of Christ. Who knows? The next major assault against the enemy's gates may be led by none other than your very own antagonistic relative or co-worker. They may receive mercy for this reason, that in them... Jesus Christ may display his perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. So look for it. Watch for it to happen. 
when it does, welcome those expatriates. Now, tragically, the nature of war that both armies have defectors. And recognizing this, Paul concludes this section of his letter by addressing the situation in which someone on our side turns out not to be on our side at all. This is the last point of your outline called Hand Over Traitors. It's verses 18 through 20. Let's read that together. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, be, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So after admonishing Timothy here to wage the good warfare, as we previously discussed, Paul addresses the painful cases of Hymenaeus and Alexander, two former brothers-in-arms who became traitors. Let's consider what we know about them. First, Paul says that they made shipwreck of their faith, meaning that they proclaim at least some degree of faith in Christ. These were self-identifying Christians. Second, Paul says that they rejected this. What is the this that they rejected? It's not entirely clear, but the most natural reading would lead us to believe that they refused to wage the good warfare. Or, perhaps, they did not hold faith in a good conscience. In either case, it is easy to imagine what their Christian lives may have looked like. Perhaps, like the thorny soil that Jesus spoke of, they sprouted up in faith, but then let the cares of this world choke out their devotion to Christ. Perhaps they stopped attending church services with the brethren, or no longer prayed to Jesus in hopeful expectation, or perhaps began engaging in the immoral activities that Paul listed in verses 8 through 10 earlier in this chapter. We're not told. What we are told is that the result was that of shipwreck, a phenomenon that Paul was all too familiar with, having experienced such disasters multiple times himself. And shipwrecks, friends, are not pretty. People's lives and livelihoods are destroyed. There's tremendous loss of valuable goods, and it disrupts innumerable lives of those who are depending on the safe arrival of that vessel in port. So when Paul says that Hymenaeus and Alexander have made a shipwreck of their faith, we can have some idea what he is referring to. Their rejection of the faith has greatly disrupted the church, their blasphemies have caused incalculable damage to the Ephesians. Paul's solution then, which he apparently implemented personally before he left, was to hand these men over to Satan as traitors. Though they seemed to be on the side of Christ, they had plainly demonstrated that they were not. Thus, Paul's actions were altogether reasonable. He simply sent them where they rightly belonged. Their hearts were already on the other side of the war. Paul simply revealed things to be what they were, and then he showed them the door. Now, this may at first strike you as wrong. How can we win people to Christ if they're out there instead of in here, instead of in the church? Is it right to actually force people to leave? Yes, it is. And Paul tells us why. He handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's aim here is restoration. 
No doubt, no doubt Paul had patiently sought to correct these men again and again, as he says to do in so many of his other letters, with patience. But the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, that if someone consistently refuses to repent of what is clearly wrong, you ought to treat them as an outsider, and that requires them to be outside of the church. By God's grace, and via much prayer, there is hope that they would indeed learn not to blaspheme, and that one day soon we would welcome back the expatriates once again, and still with open arms. What does this mean for us, Grace Fellowship? It means that we must be willing to do this also. We have done it before, and it was heartbreaking. And I expect that we will have to do it again, because if it can happen on the watch of the Apostle Paul, it will likely happen here too. But the application for us, friends, is not fear. We ought not wake up each Sunday if one, and wonder if somebody here is going to be handed over to Satan, if we ourselves are going to be handed over to Satan. That's not the application. No, the application for us, I think, is to have joy and hope. You should have joy knowing that you have shepherds watching over you who will not allow wolves to roam about freely amongst the flock. Or to use our war analogy, we will not allow traitors to ambush us from within our own ranks, to the very best of our God-given ability. By God's grace, we will not allow that. So find joy, friends, in the safety that Christ's church provides for you. And in addition to joy, we should also have hope. Paul could have said that he handed over these men to their unending destruction and punishment. But he didn't. His great hope is that these men would learn, albeit the hard way, to stop blaspheming and turn to Christ. So here's the hope, friends. For those of us with family members or dear friends or co-workers, even some who were formerly vibrant members of local churches who now fail to walk with Christ, there is hope. Now we do not ultimately know what became Hymenaeus and Alexander. But Paul knew that all was not lost. So we too should pray. And continue praying. That one day soon, we might see those people walk through those doors, fall on their knees, and repent of their sin. Let us watch for them while they are still a long way off. And let us run to them with joy the moment they crest the horizon. So what is our conclusion to all this, friends? What would Paul have us take away from this chapter? It is this. The life of the church is a life of war. We must draw doctrinal battle lines. We must welcome expatriates, and we must hand over traitors. In doing so, we will wage the good warfare. And because we are faithfully led by God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope, the outcome is secure. The war will not last forever, and our victory is sure. I began our time this morning by quoting Winston Churchill, so it seems appropriate that his words will close our time as well. Let me read you the conclusion of the speech we heard earlier. You ask, what is our aim? 
I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward toward its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all, and I say, come then, let us go forward together with all our united strength. Less than five years later, after that speech, Hitler was dead and Germany had surrendered. How much more secure is the victory in Jesus Christ? Come then, brothers and sisters. Let us go forward together with all our united strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have commanded us to wage war. And God, I confess that it is easy to be intimidated by that, to, to think of the suffering that, that lies ahead, the pain involved in any war, physical or spiritual, and to dread it. But God, we know that you are in command. You are our general. You are our king. You are our hope. And so the victory is secure, Lord. We, we ask for your help. Even as we strive to do this, even imperfectly, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for discernment. We ask you would help us to know when to divide, when to welcome, where to draw the battle lines. And Lord, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.